Well, I really appreciate your welcome. Um, even just arriving in the car park, I was made to feel so welcome by the first person who smiled and said hello and showed me where to go. And as a visitor to a church, can I just say what an encouragement that is, that at every point on my journey right into this hall, I was made to feel extremely welcome. So thank you for that. It's really great to be with you. Um, I've got to know Jonathan really over the last three years or so as we've come together to work with other churches to be a resource and a catalyst for church planting in the city of Birmingham. So City Church was planted 13 years ago. Uh, Since that time, we planted a daughter church, and we've helped also in a replant in another part of Birmingham. And I think both Jonathan and I have really, uh, the Lord has has brought us together with, with a vision for really trying to see a church in every community of this city that is reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ into that community. Christians will get in cars, won't they? Christians will get and travel and go to a church. But people who don't know Jesus, who've never heard of the gospel, we need to go into them and be salt and light in those communities. So how do you see churches in every part of our city of a million people? Well, we just need to see loads of churches planted. And we kind of realized that actually working together, we could do so much more than, than working apart. And what we've tried to do is, is, is just to encourage church planters to think, what can we do together? We won't necessarily plant churches together, but how can we resource church planting? By encouraging planters, training planters, mentoring and coaching and uh, resourcing And I've been blessed to really build that friendship with Jonathan based around that common vision and that common heart that we can do so much more together than we we could ever do on our own. So I hope you'll join us as, as we pray to see churches planted right across not just the city of Birmingham, but we hope, of course, across our nation and across the world. So I join you as a as a church planter and uh, as someone who has a heart and a love for this city. So we've got everything in common under the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't we? And uh, supremely, what we have in common is, uh, is, is, is his gospel word that has brought new life to us. So let's pray together, shall we, as we come and look at uh, his word together. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you indeed for turning our mourning into dancing. We want to thank you for the joy of our salvation which you have made possible, not because of us, but because of you and your great love for us. So we want to sit and listen to you this morning. We want to have open hearts to receive from your word. Would you teach us, we pray, by your spirit, for your name, for your renown, for your praise. Amen. Well, if you do have a Bible, do uh, do grab it. We're going to be uh, in in the book of Exodus this morning. And um, I want to start by saying, sorry, Jonathan, not to rub it in in any way, but we were due to go together to a conference three weeks ago in New York, and that conference was really to gather together church planters from across the world, or, or really catalysts for church plants, network leaders, and so on, to, to learn from one another what God is doing in our cities, to see how we could perhaps go back and do that a little bit better. Sadly, Jonathan wasn't able to be there because of his back. I went along with another church planter from Liverpool, and uh, we had a good time, Jonathan, sorry, just to, uh, to remind you of that. Um, while we were there, we had the opportunity on the last morning before we flew back to go and visit the memorial site, uh, what was Ground Zero, where those twin towers stood in Manhattan in New York. You'll know, maybe you've seen on the news, the 9-11 memorial that has been opened in just the last year. And I got to visit with this friend of mine, and what made it poignant as we visited that memorial was that his sister had worked in New York. And his sister was kind of an events or a party organizer, and she'd organized a conference 
to be taking place in the North Tower on the day of 9-11. And that conference took place. Everyone gathered, the conference started, and everyone who was in that tower at that conference perished. Everyone perished apart from my friend's sister. And she didn't perish because she changed jobs six weeks before 9-11. She'd booked the venue. She'd organized the conference. She'd, everything would have happened. She should have been there, but she changed jobs. And so one of her best friends and her work colleagues took her place and was in that tower and perished on that uh, dreadful day of 9-11. And visiting the memorial, we went, to the, we went to the spot where her name, the name of this colleague, her name was engraved on the memorial, and we stood next to it. And uh, sadly, to the best of our knowledge, she was not a believer. Now, how does my friend's sister feel now? Well, I guess in one sense, what she feels, if she were to visit the memorial is in one sense the extraordinary thing that she's been saved from. As she looks at, at all of those names are, are around there, the thousands of people who died, she thought, that could have been me, that should have been me, but I've been saved from that. And I guess the question is for her, how does she live the rest of her life? How do you live in that knowledge? You know, there must have been dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people who, who overslept, who didn't make it up for working time, who were just away on a day's annual leave or at a conference somewhere else, who should have been in those towers, who know what, therefore, they have been saved from. Well, what kind of life do you live when you know you've been saved from certain death in such a way? Well, it's a question we might, we might imagine. We wouldn't know how to answer. And yet, for us as Christians... If you're here this morning as a Christian, we're really asking the same sort of question, aren't we? We know what we've been saved from. We can answer that question. We can sing that question. We know that God has saved us, that he's a God of rescue. He saved us from our sins. He saved us from death. He saved us from judgment. He saved us from hell. We know what we've been saved from. But I wonder as Christians whether we sometimes find it harder to answer the question, what have we been saved for? We know what we've been saved from. But do we know as much what we've been saved for? How does being a Christian change your, your values, your priorities, your commitments? I see, sadly, sometimes, I'm not saying that would be true of a church like this, but I see, sadly, sometimes Christians whose, whose priorities and values and commitments don't seem to change very much at all. They know what they've been saved from, but they're still trying to work out, well, what have I been saved for? Well, I think the book of Exodus is a brilliant book to go to to find some answers to that question. So would you turn to Exodus and uh, chapter 20 uh, with me? Exodus chapter 20. See, the book of Exodus is really the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. And the book of Exodus is really the gospel told in two halves. It's a book that divides into two halves. And in the first half of the book of Exodus, you'll know from Prince of Egypt, if you've not read Exodus itself, you'll know that God is a God of rescue. 
Israel discover, don't they, that God is a God of rescue, willing and able to rescue them from every enemy. When Israel was slaves in Egypt, when they were helpless, when the situation was hopeless, they cried out to God, and God was not indifferent to their plight. He came to rescue by raising up a rescuer, and that rescuer, of course, was Moses. God is a God who rescues people. And when you read the book of Exodus, you'll see chapters 1 to 18 are all about getting the people of Israel out of Egypt, rescuing them from slavery, from the tyranny and oppression of evil. But you notice the book of Exodus doesn't end at chapter 18, does it? It doesn't end with the great escape. It doesn't end with the people just free from Egypt. For God is not just a God of rescue. God is a God of relationship. The God of rescue is the God of relationship. In other words, this is our key point for this morning. He rescues us for a purpose. And as we carry on reading through the book of Exodus, we find that the goal of rescue is relationship. So uh, chapter 19, the verse might come up onto, onto the screen behind you. You'll see what God says at the beginning of the second half of the book as Israel camp at Mount Sinai, where they're going to spend a year, get that, they're going to spend a year all the way from Exodus chapter 19 all the way through to the book of Numbers. They're going to spend a year learning what it means to be God's people rescued from slavery for a relationship. And God says to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The lesson of the Ten Commandments that we're going to read in a moment are contained in these words. Philip Ryken says this, he says, salvation is never an end in itself. There is always something greater than salvation. Does that sound odd to you as a Christian? There's something greater than salvation? Well, there is. There's something greater than salvation. And Philip Ryken says, it's God himself. That's the end of your salvation. God. God has saved you for a new life with him and for him. Do you know that? That the God of rescue is a God who wants a relationship with you? That's always been God's goal, isn't it? Think right the way back to the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. What do we discover? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and God is with them, walking in the Garden. The fulfillment of all things, what do we discover at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation? When Jesus comes again, what's God's goal in rescuing? You, a relationship with with him. An intimate relationship where he'll wipe away every tear from your eye. He saved you for for a relationship with him. Through a rescue, Exodus chapters 1 to 18, that begins to echo our rescue from Satan and sin and death through Jesus on the cross, rescued from those things for a relationship with him forever. So when it comes to the Ten Commandments, which is what God has next to say to his people, it's really important that we don't think that the God of rescue has now become the God of rules. See, when you read the Ten Commandments, that's what you might think if you read them in isolation. If you just ripped that one page out of the Bible and showed it to someone and said, what do you think God is like? They might say, he's a God who gives lists of rules. 
Well, he isn't. He's a God of rescue, a God of relationship, but the God who has the right and the need to define how that relationship works. What does a relationship of love look like? Well, if you've ever been to a wedding, you'll know a wedding is where a couple will exchange vows and define their relationship, will make their love tangible and real by the commitments that they make to one another. Well, the relationship that God wants with his people is a relationship of love, and our commitment to him is to recognize what it means to love him through our commitment to him. So the God of rescue is not a God who suddenly turns nasty in the book of Exodus when it gets to chapter 20. He's not now throwing his weight around saying, well, now I've rescued you. Here's a whole bunch of rules. And yet, sadly, even as Christians, we can slip into that mindset, can't we? This is not God saying, now I've saved you, you owe me. It's not God saying, here's a bunch of rules that I'm going to throw at you. No, God is saying, look, Exodus 1 to 18, I have shown you what it means for me to love you. How much more for us as Christians can we say, the way God has rescued us through his son, Jesus, dying on a cross for our sins, we know God is saying to us, now you know I love you. This is what it means for me to love you. Now God says to us through these commands, I want you to know what it means for you to love me. So shall we read them? Exodus chapter 20, not a list of rules, but a love relationship with our Father in heaven. God spoke all these words. Exodus 20 verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above or on earth beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing the children for the third the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or nor daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien who lives within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There they are. The Ten Commandments, or more accurately, or more literally, the Ten Words. A summary statement of everything that it means to live as God's rescued people in relationship with Him. Well, I wonder what difference it makes to you to have even read them. I don't know how many of you could write them down now from memory. How many of even these commandments you can remember, I don't know. 
Well, if you think the Ten Commandments are, are rules from God to earn some kind of relationship, then you'll forever have a warped view of God and you'll forever find these kind of statements and these commands a burden to behold. I guess if we think these are rules to earn a relationship, we'll find our way wanting to try and escape God's word, to avoid conclusions and applications because we fear the implications. But when you see that these commands are given to God's people who are already his people, who have already been saved, who are rescued for a relationship for him, who are saved despite ourselves, then they will function like those marriage vows many of us have made to our spouse. That, yeah, I want to live this way for God. I want to love God in the way that he has loved me. And like marriage vows that are there to cement and secure a relationship. So as we think, well, I've been saved from sin for God, and now I really want to know what it means to live for God. Just as you work through in your marriage what it means to really want to live to love your spouse. So the goal of your Christian life is God, the goal of your salvation. He's your ultimate price. And he's the one you want to live for and delight in. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we might see it again on the screen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He rescues his people and gives us words of grace. You see, if you read Exodus chapter 20 and you think, gosh, they sound like a burden, I wonder whether you've ever thought what Jesus thought of these words. What Jesus thought of of God's commandments. Because Jesus said you could summarize all of these in two statements. Yeah, Maybe you know this from, from the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Maybe come up now, I hope. Maybe. This is what Jesus thinks they say in a nutshell. They say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two statements. As St. Augustine said, he basically said, love God and do what you want. He said that's the message of the Bible. As God saved people rescued in a secure relationship love him and do what you want because loving him is defined by what you now want to do summarized in these two commands so as we read them we say all of this is just showing me how to love look at what paul says in romans chapter 13 he says it like this coming up next let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another for whoever loves has fulfilled the law And then he shows us what he means. He goes on to say, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment they may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I don't know whether you're interested in cricket. Maybe you you are, maybe you're not. Well, C.T. Studd was a famous cricketer of the 19th century, so we're going back a little bit in time now. He played cricket. In those days, you often got to play cricket for both Cambridge University and England at the same time. Don't ask me how, but he did. And uh, C.T. Studd was one of those cricketers, a brilliant, brilliant batsman. And he was once staying at the home of a Victorian minister called F.B. Mayer, and uh, Studd was staying with him, a wonderful, godly Christian man 
who would later go onto the mission field to China. And uh, C.T. Studd was staying there. And uh, Mayer noticed that his room was on in the middle of the night. And he was curious, wanting to know that everything was okay. So he stuck his head around the corner and asked C.T. Studd, is everything okay? And Studd quoted words from Jesus in his Bible that was open before him. And there were these words, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And uh, C.T. Studd said, I do love him. So I'm reading all his commands to check whether there are any that I'm not obeying. Do you see? He said, it's because I love Jesus that I want to please him. And therefore, I'm reading my Bible. I'm looking to see how can I please Jesus. And so the book of Exodus, the gospel of the Old Testament, is showing us in the Ten Commandments, how can you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How can you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, look at the Ten Words. Look at the Ten Commandments and learn what it is to live for him. I wonder whether you're someone who loves Jesus enough to want to underline every command that he gives you in the Bible. Say, because I love him, I want to please him. Are you the kind of Christian who would want to do a Bible study with C.T. Studd in the middle of the night? I don't know. It'd be a challenge, wouldn't it? Are you someone who wants to learn how to love God from his word? I meet a lot of Christians who say, I'm really happy that God has saved me. Amen to that. Amen. But I want more and more Christians to say, but I'm even happier that God has saved me for himself. Yeah? I'm really happy that God has saved me, but I want to be happier that he saved me for himself. Alec Matea said, saving love leads to and excites grateful love. Saving love leads to grateful love. And Matea said, grateful love is expressed in obedience. So what are the Ten Commandments about? Well, let me just say in the second half of what I'm going to say this morning, I want to say three things about the Ten Commandments that will give you a bit of a framework that might help you if you want to work through these and think through these for yourself. Firstly, the Ten Commandments actually show us what God is like. It's the first thing we learn through the Ten Commandments, what God himself is like. Do you know Richard Dawkins has had a go at writing his own Ten Commandments? I mean, uh, talk about a guy with a God complex. Um, he's a guy who, who's already decided that he can do a little bit better than the Bible. So if you, if you Google on the internet Richard Dawkins' Ten Commandments, you'll get a list of them. They start, consider the lives of every human being in this world, including yourself, as unalterably and exactly equal. Do not kill another conscious being unless the lives of others, including yourself, are under threat. And it goes on, it goes on, it goes on. But what you'll notice is two things. One is, no surprise, no mention of God at all. His commandments don't begin with God. And secondly, perhaps slightly uh, less obvious to our own minds, but really important, is that there's no foundation for his commandments. Because if I said to, to Dawkins, why? As he read each command, I just put my hand up and said, why? And, and why should I live that way? And why? And why? Of course, he, 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 he's really not giving you commandments, is, is he? He's saying, actually, I've got 10 suggestions for you. I've got 10 bits of advice on how we could, we could all learn to get on a little bit better in the world. But in rejecting God, he's rejecting the foundation for how anyone would want to live or could live. They're just 10 suggestions, aren't they? 
But what we find in the Bible are ten commands from God that are not arbitrary. God hasn't just thought, I wonder what ten things I could could test my people's love for me with. No, these commandments flow out of the actual character of God. They're reflections of what God is like. So let me give you an example. Do not lie. Okay, there's a commandment, do not lie. I say to my son at home, look, it's wrong for us to lie to one another. And if he says to me, but why? I want to say, because God is not a God who has lied to us. Yeah, the foundation for truth is in the very character of God. And I want to say to him, isn't it great that we can know that what God has said is always true? Whenever God speaks, he always tells us the truth. Isn't that the most wonderful thing? And my son says, yes, it is, because I can know what to believe then and how to live and what Jesus has done for me. So said, so we speak truthfully to one another because God is a God of truth. God is a God of faithfulness. Because God is a God of faithfulness, it says in the Bible, do not commit adultery. Because adultery is a symbol or an act of unfaithfulness. It's because God is always true to us that we need to be true to one another in all of our relationships. And of course, crucially, in the biggest statement that we make in relationships, and that's in marriage. Every commandment is a reflection of God's character. Here's what it means. The commandments could not have been any difference. They couldn't have been any difference because they're rooted in the godness of God. God would have to be different for his commands to be different. And what that means is, in one sense, you could say there couldn't have been any more than the ten, and there certainly couldn't have been any fewer. Strike a line through any of these ten, and something about the character of God is gone. What it means is God didn't forget anything, and what it means is God didn't repeat himself in the Ten Commandments. Cecil B. DeMille was, uh, was, uh, was a film director, and he actually directed the film The Ten Commandments. And uh, he once said this, he said, God does not contradict himself. He didn't create man, and then as an afterthought, impose upon him a set of arbitrary, irritating, restrictive rules. He made man free, and then gave the commandments to keep him free. You see, we're made for relationship with God, and the commandments actually firstly tell us what God is like before they say anything to us about how we're to live as his people. So we're looking through the commandments to the giver of the commandments, to the God behind them. There is no one like God. That's why he says, first commandment, you shall have no other gods. He's saying you shall have no other gods because there are no other gods. It couldn't be any other. It reveals why God is jealous for his name and reputation because there is no other God to share his glory his name and reputation. So behind everything, as we look through the commandments, little by little, we realize God is God and understand who he is a little bit more and a little bit more. They show us who God is and they show us what he loves and what he hates and why he loves and why he hates. So as we read through, whether or not 
we think, yeah, I want to go this way and I want to live this life for God, at every point we're saying, can I trust that because God is like that, I want to become more and more like that? And if we fight God at any point over these commandments, we're saying, God, it's, I have a problem with your character that you want me to be like that. Can I commit every detail of my life to a God who has loved me in this way and love him back in the way that he commands? So the Ten Commandments, firstly, tell us more about God than they do about ourselves. But they do, secondly, show us what sort of people God wants us to be. Because they couldn't be any different, they prepare us perfectly for life as his people. So um, I'm preaching through a series on this in our church, and I've called the whole series Blueprint, God's Design for Life. These Ten Commandments show us how God wants us to be. They cover every aspect of our lives. The first four are about our relationship with God supremely. The last six are about our relationship with one another. They cover everything, don't they? Our relationship with our family, with our neighbor. They cover everything that my thought life, how I speak, what I do. The whole course of life, they're going to show us how to live. But thirdly, the Ten Commandments do this. They show us how much we still need Jesus. You see, it's so wrong to think that the Christian life is about I need Jesus to get going and then I've got a bunch of rules to keep going. Now the whole Christian life from start to end is saying I need Jesus today more than I've ever needed him. Yeah? Every day of my Christian life I want to wake up and say, Lord Jesus, I need you more not a little bit less than yesterday because I'm a little bit older and wiser as a Christian. I want to say I need you more today than I did before because I understand who you are more through your commandments. I understand how the life you've called me to live, I cannot live apart from you. And so the Ten Commandments begin to show me where Jesus fits into everything. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're looking into Christianity can I say the Ten Commandments are, are supremely to show us that God can't accept you or me as we are. He can't say simply to us, oh, just do your best. Try not to hurt anyone in the world and in life, and, and I'm sure you'll be all right at the end. Now, once we've seen the character of God and his standards which are love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, you realize, actually, God, thank you for showing me that I cannot make it on my own. I can't live this life for a moment. And I need a Savior, Jesus. So if you're a Christian and you're, and you're talking to a friend and, and your friend says to you, well, I think God, God's all right with me. I think you'll be fine with me. Next time you're at work, we say, well, do you know what God's standards are? And it could be that as a result of, of what you hear this morning, that next time you're in a conversation, you could say, well, God has shown you the pass mark. We've got all these signs, bits of paper on the wall up here. don't know whether for their Jonathan sermons or what they are, 100% pass and 100% this, I don't know. Um, but basically, they're, t they're, they're telling us, look at all these great achievements we've made as a school. Well, we want to say, look at the Ten Commandments and realize we can't possibly make it on our own. Whether it's 94%, or 23%, or whatever it is, all of us fall short of God's perfect standards. And lots of our friends have no idea 
what God's standards are. You say, well, look, come and look at the Bible. See why Jesus had to come. Look at what it is that we would have to do to make it on our own. When the law says, do not commit adultery, we want to reassure ourselves and say, well, that's at least one I've not committed. And then Jesus says, you do realize what that means, don't you? That command in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And when you actually scratch, uh, a scratch, beneath, uh, scratch the surface and go deep, you see no one, no one left to themselves can live the life that God has called us to live. And the Ten Commandments show me I need Jesus. In fact, Jim Packer says, if you want to see what it is to live the Ten Commandments, if you want to know what your life would look like if you could, you've got to look at Jesus the only one who actually did live out the Ten Commandments perfectly. And say, have you lived as Jesus lived? No, neither have I. Well, that shows you why Jesus had to come. If you do have a Bible, I've got one more cross-reference, only one, as we draw towards a close. Jeremiah 31. Great encouragement to us as, uh, as we look at these words today. Jeremiah 31, 31. If you've never turned to this verse... That will help you remember, won't it? 31, 31. There's one to lodge in your mind because it's the most precious promise for you if you're a Christian. It's a beautiful and precious word for you. The time is coming, God says through his prophet Jeremiah, the time is coming, Jeremiah 31, 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. See, these words of Exodus 20, Israel failed to keep them. They broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, they were not a faithful wife to me, essentially is what God is saying. This is my covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, verse 33, declares the Lord. What's God going to do? What's his promise to you as a Christian? I will put my law in your minds and write it on your hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Notice that God says, I'm going to write the law on your your minds and write it on your hearts. And the book of uh, Ezekiel tells us that God's going to do us by the gift of his spirit. He's going to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And his spirit is going to write... God's desires onto our hearts so that the life that we can't live for which Jesus had to come and suffer and die for is the life that we can begin to live by Jesus' Spirit beginning to live and work within us. So look, the Ten Commandments, do you know what? You could actually call them the Ten Promises, couldn't you? They're the Ten Promises. God's going to write them on your heart. You know what heaven's going to be? You know what the the new creation's going to be? It's going to be a world in which we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We will keep these commandments perfectly one day. But for now, I keep having to come to the cross for forgiveness of sins and you every day because I see God's standards written in these commandments, and I have to come and say, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit... Would you keep writing these things on my heart? Would you keep showing me what it means to love you? 
and my neighbor as myself. And know this, Christian, God will not stop working in your heart and God will not stop working in your life until he has written those commandments perfectly. That we wait for a new resurrection body and a new life in glory, but the day is coming when these things will be wonderfully true of us. Those are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Promises, the Ten Words of Life. What does it mean to live a love relationship with the God who has rescued us from sin for himself? Well, it's this life that by his Spirit he's beginning to produce in us. I'm going to pray in a moment. If you want to read some more, can I recommend two books for you? I'm not here to sell them. I don't make a penny profit from either of these. Jim Packer, Keeping the Ten Commandments. Really simple. It'd be a great thing if you wanted to dig deeper into the commandments, understand what they mean, how to live them. Bite size, easy to read. For those of you who think, well, what would it mean in different aspects of my life? This one called Ten at Work, Living the Commandments in Your Job by John Palmer, I found really helpful. Again, it's just saying, well, just look at one aspect of your life, the workplace. So how do one to ten, how could these become increasingly realities of my life as I seek to shine light into my work environment? So keeping the Ten Commandments, ten at work. Let's pray, shall we?